Thank you for joining us today for the Conform to Christ podcast, where we aim to engage the mind, affect the heart, and call people to follow Christ. My name is George Mays, and sitting across from me is Dr. Jay Jones. What's up? How's it going? Doing well today. We are uh, on Free For All Friday. Uh-huh. We've got some interesting stuff to talk about today. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, but first, we want to talk about something that we kind of teased yeah. last yeah. week. And we won't, we won't be able to go into great detail <clears throat> on this because we got some fresh, hot material we've got to cover that uh, I think is probably more important than talking about the vaccine mandates. What do you think? In the long run, I think this is more important. Um, I would say so, yeah. yeah, For sure. So I, I still want to do a longer vaccine uh, episode. COVID episode. Maybe YouTube won't take it down if we just have a nice, uh, reasonable conversation about it. We'll see. But <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a couple people in mind that I'd like to get here, invite invite them here. Okay. May have to pay their gas money. Um, but I think it would be really good. So we'd have... Would we'd this have, be a good time to encourage people if they want to give <laughs> yeah. to the podcast? Yeah. If you want to give to guess, gas money fund... Go ahead and donate to the podcast. <laughs> right. Um, be, be good to have them out. A couple other pastors um, that live in uh, Oklahoma. Differing, I think probably we would have some differing uh, viewpoints on some things, mm-hmm. and I think we could demonstrate how to have a civil discussion about this and not be ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought that was what Free For All Friday was all right. about, us being ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I'll just state my position. My position is the government, I do not believe, has any authority uh, under God to force anyone to take a vaccine, right? The government doesn't care about that, obviously, but nor do I think they have the authority under the Constitution to do that either. Um, So the mandates to the general population, I I don't see any way that you could even support that constitutionally or, more importantly, Biblically, the role of the government, we know, is to reward those who are doing good and to punish those doing evil. Right. Um, so I think they're stepping outside their bounds when they're trying to force you. Right. And what what they're doing is saying they're going to take away pretty much your livelihood. <laughs> right. You're not going to be able to work if you don't take this. That's yeah. it's it's pretty immoral. Um, we'll see. I think it'll be challenged in the courts, and it won't stand. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree. So I think. Both of us would say, um, if you if you want to take the vaccine, I think it's morally permissible permissible to do so. Right. If you don't want to take it, um, you, you just have to weigh the risk that you're willing to take. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's what people are are having to do. Um, right. You've, you've got to you got to weigh the risk. Um, but uh, again, the the government shouldn't be mandating that you inject something in your body and yeah. um there's finally i think i think the i think that the more heavy-handed they are the worse the worse that they're making it yeah um you shouldn't have to force people to take it right yeah the um there are a lot of other things we could talk to talk about in regards to the vaccine which right. maybe we'll, we'll probably get into when when we have our larger episode about it yeah other ethical things uh, in that regard but uh I want it. I should have brought in that video, that NBA player, because oh, yeah. I think there's what we're starting to see is pushback against this stuff. Right. You know, the the reporters ask him, "Have you been vaccinated?" And yeah. he's like, 
Uh, no, I haven't. I'm assuming all of you have been vaccinated or you wouldn't be here. Now, he, he, he has natural immunity, but isn't really talk about that, uh, the fact that his natural immunity from the latest studies appears to be uh, more robust than vaccinated immunity. But he just simply asked the people asking him a question. He says, so you've been vaccinated. Can you, can you get COVID? Can I ask you a question? Can you still get COVID? And the person's like, yeah. He's like, okay. Can you still spread it to other people? They're like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Well, uh, we've got players on this team and coaches that have been vaccinated, and they're not here right now at camp with us because they're having to be quarantined because they got COVID. Yeah. So why should I take it? Right? And and then they'll say, well, you'll say, and so he says, you'll say to me, it's it's to keep you from getting really sick and being hospitalized. But obviously you're talking to one of the most healthy people on the planet, an NBA player, right? He's He is uh, making the choice for himself, Yeah. and he should be allowed to. So I think that you're seeing that there is some pushback. There's even some hospitals yeah. starting to push back, <clears throat> CEOs of hospitals saying they're not going to mandate that their employees take it. Uh, people ought, ought to be able to make that choice for themselves. Right. I mean, it's a it's a complex issue. We don't want to we don't want to to you know just kind of flatten it all out and say this is ridiculous. We certainly want to take um, the coronavirus seriously. We've had many people in our church who right. are sick. Uh-huh. We've got people who are sick right now, and and it's not it's not just the sniffles that right. they are feeling very bad. Yeah, for a long time. Right. Um, so we don't we don't want to minimize the seriousness of it, but we also don't want to um, exaggerate the seriousness of it either. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be wise and make the best decision for yourself and for your family. And I don't think that the the government should be cramming it down your throat. Right. Um, and like I like I said, I, I think the more that they do it, the worse that they're. They're making it. If well, I mean, I what was it? Uh, I can't remember. I, I think it was United Airlines are getting ready to fire like six hundred employees. Yeah, that's not going to have any repercussions. Yeah, that's going to be that's going to be <laughs> crippling. It's got to be. Yeah, that's that's. I don't know how you can fiscally do this. Right. Um, they're talking about the problems that they're having at the hospitals, and they don't have enough beds because they don't have enough workers, and so they're going to fire hundreds of employees it just seems like we're we're just going to run into even more problems yeah um, over this but again this is this is a a complex issue and and we'll try to get to it hopefully we can get to it pretty soon i think the biggest question maybe that that people are kind of pondering and it keeps getting thrown around and we keep toying with it and we haven't really gave any answer and we're not going to spend a a long time on it but is is the vaccine (laughs) yeah the I mark of the this. beast. I forgot about that. And this I think part. that's I think that's the question that a lot of people have and and maybe we could spend just, you know, a few minutes yeah, yeah, talking yeah. about it. The vaccine's not the mark of the beast. There I fixed it. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty straightforward answer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you have any do you have anything to back that up? Like yeah, what I, what's your ar- what's your argument to say it's not the mark of the beast? Well, I think you're going to you know you're taking the mark of the beast. Uh, whether whether it would be a literal mark, and we can talk about that too, whether it's literal or in some way figurative for a uh, worldview lifestyle mm-hmm. type thing. But you know what you're doing, and it's associated with um, worship. Right. Right. So in, in the it has to be applicable too for the people that were alive. Right. So 
we kind of share this idealist view of interpreting. That's one of the ways we kind of share things. Like we might not have ex- everything worked out exactly together on yeah. end time stuff, but we kind of share the idealist view. I like. Of interpreting um, Revelation, I, I right? like. I like uh, G.K. Bill's description. He calls himself an eclectic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he calls himself uh, an eclectic idealist, and okay. so. So what what that means is that there are different approaches to the book of Revelation. There's the preterist view that holds that most of the book was in the past. There's the futurist book that sees most of the book is in the future. Um, there's the historical or historicist view that that likes to see um, it the book of Revelation telling the the story of history from the first coming to the second mm-hmm. coming of Christ. And they right. they'll just depending on which historicist you're you're reading, they'll they will look at particular passages and try to pinpoint a, yeah. a precise historical event. Um, and then there's the idealist view that sees it more as um, principles, mm-hmm. as the idea of, of the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. Um, I'd probably be more of an eclectic, like G.K. Bill, mm-hmm. bringing them all together. I think there's truth that, right. that's in all of them, and you bring it together, so... The book of Revelation was written to seven historical churches in the first century that were undergoing persecution, and they were being warned about an increase in persecution. And I don't, so I don't think that you can rip the book um, out of that historical context and put it all in the future as if it had nothing to do with the churches that John was writing to. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time, I don't think that um, we can say that all of this has been ultimately fulfilled as it will be in the future, mm-hmm. um, especially the escalation of uh, natural disasters and human rebellion that culminates in a final rebellion that's put down when Christ returns. Right. So I, I think that you you have to put it together, and uh, I, I think that we see uh, a pattern that keeps being repeated throughout the book mm-hmm. that escalates into the end. Right. And so... There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, not just in the not just in the the final period right before Christ comes, but throughout. And there has been, ever and there since. has been. I mean, you, all you have to do is is read a history book, and you see that wars. that this this is what characterizes the last days. Yeah, and we've talked about the fact that the last days is a is a technical term for the time period right. between the resurrection and the second coming. Right. So we've been living in the last days for two thousand years. Um, and we could be living in the last days for another 2,000 years. We, yeah. we don't know. Uh, but it will culminate in a final rebellion. So um, I, I would see, uh, I would take that approach to the book of Revelation. Yeah. So when we're talking about the mark of the beast, I think we have to think of it in those terms also. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, and also when you go to Revelation uh, 13 and you read about it, it's associated with worship. Right. Um, Definitely. I mean, you can't. You can't do it I, on accident. Yeah, I think. I think that's the problem with a lot of the the um, identification of what is the mark of the beast. You can't. You can't fall backwards into it. Yeah. Um. It. It is tied to the beast. Yes. It, it is tied into allegiance. Um. It's not. It's not a computer chip that has your. Um bank account information right. <laughs> encoded right. in it. Um, it has to be tied to worship. Uh, we should have brought up a list. Uh, yeah, bank accounts, mm-hmm. uh, barcodes, uh-huh. people with barcodes were the mark of the beast, right. credit cards were the mark of the beast, 
Um, what else? There's been a whole variety of things that people have said are the mark of the Jack beast. Van Impey. I'll never forget it. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget his identification of the mark of the beast because it's tied to this number 666. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a often uh, misunderstood. People look at it as 666, like it's three sixes, but it's 666 mm-hmm. um, in the Greek. Some early manuscripts actually have uh, 616, which we can't, we, we don't have time to get into all of this right now. But uh, Jack Van Impey, he did, um, I don't even remember how he did this mathematical thing. And uh, it somehow came out to uh, the word computers. And so he saw the mark of the beast in some way connected to computers. As if the first century Christians would have been able to work that hey, out. Right. I mean, John, John, um, he obviously believes that um, these Christians that he's writing to would be able to discern what this means. Yes. It's not something that is pushed forward 2,000 years, and we can only now figure it out. He said, let the one who has wisdom calculate the number of the beast. Yeah. And he's talking not to us in the 21st century that have laptops in front of us. He's talking to first sure. century Christians. Yeah. So it has to be a- applicable to them. Right. Yeah, and they've got to be able to discern what it is. Um, there's an interesting thing I just thought of as to why. I mean, I'm saying it could be a little literal mark in the future, uh-huh. but um, it. I mean, it could be. But think about the early Christian days, right? The, we know there were Christians in the Roman army. Yeah. Right. right. And they and that Jesus encountered Roman centurion. John the Baptist did as well. These uh, these were never told to get out of the Roman army. Mm-hmm. They would literally take a brand on their arm. Yeah. They took a mark that, that marked them out as property yeah. of Rome. And allegiance in a militaristic sense to Caesar. So there were obviously Christians at that time who did not devote themselves to Caesar as Lord. Right. And so that would be a tricky place to be and to live. But they were there. Yeah. One of the, the earliest crucifix marking is um Alexamenos worships his god we've talked about mm-hmm. it before it's yeah. it's soldiers mocking their fellow soldier for worshiping Jesus and right. Jesus has the head of a donkey yeah and so it's very interesting to think about that there's a literal mark at that time that they would take right marking them out as in allegiance to the Roman army yeah uh, but we've talked about it before the tie to the the Shema which is likely yeah, I, I from, think th- from there's, there are so the book of Revelation has so many allusions to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quote it once, mm-hmm. but it alludes to it throughout. Um, I, depending on which commentary you read, they'll have different numbers. Um, but there's probably over a hundred, um, maybe close to two hundred allusions to the Old Testament. And so, I think that uh, and if 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 there's that many allusions, John is. Um, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's assuming that these Christians have access. know their Old Testament, yeah. right? And so when they're 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 told that um, people are going to have something on their forehead and on their right hand, there's a very clear Old Testament allusion to Deuteronomy chapter six mm-hmm. and the Shema, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Um, and you're supposed to put God's law on your forehead and on your hand so that you remember it. Right. 
Um, now, but, the, now, now, not the, meaning in a literal right, sense. Right now, the now the Pharisees took it um, They took it literally, and so they had these phylacteries where they put the Shema in a little box, and then they had tied this to box tied to their forehead. They still have them today. Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah, I've seen Israel uh, uh, images of the Israeli army. Yeah, they'll stop and do their prayer times, and they tie that box around their arm with a leather strap, yeah. and they have it on their hand. Right now, that um, is not going to ensure that you obey God's law. And Jesus says that to him. You make your phylacteries broad, right? Yeah, your fringes long, yeah. And but yet they but don't, they're not obeying they're it, not, right? They don't know God. So the idea is God, not yeah. put put God's law in a little box and put it on your forehead. It's think about God's law all the time. Have your mind governed do, by do it. Do God's do God's law. Yeah, um, it's in with your, your mind, hands. and yep. it affects how you live your life. Right. Your hands being. So you, I think that I think there's a clear allusion to that with uh, the mark of the beast. It's on their head and it's on their hands. So they're not thinking about God and His law; they're thinking about the world and uh, and this beast, and they're doing what the beast wants them to do. Yeah. They have they have a worldly they have a worldly mind, and they do worldly things. It, this is just my pure speculation but i think that uh what is pictured in the emperor of rome um who was a type of beast yeah. obviously and when you understand how these terms are used in by daniel that's how mm-hmm. that's how john is using these terms right. standing for the human governments and and he's the superpower of the world he he's the emperor has total control total mm-hmm. power but he is and we think about typological fulfillments we could even speak of it in, in as a way that he's a shadow of the true beast. So I think in the future time there is coming a, 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 a one world government as powerful as ancient Rome that is headed by a person who literally mandates the worship of him, mm-hmm. or we could say in general maybe the worship of man, yeah. but probably him because people love to be worshiped. I mean, dictators do this. <laughs> right. Dictators declare themselves God today. Yeah. Um, the uh, the emperor of North Korea mm-hmm. does he call himself emperor? I don't know his term, but they think he's a living god. Yeah, and he says he's, and they worship him. Uh-huh. So this is not far fetched to see <laughs> right. how it could easily happen. Yeah, um, and you will have total allegiance to him, or you won't be able to survive. Now yeah. Christians won't take that. They won't, and so they'll have to. Uh, God will protect them, or they'll be martyred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think there's coming a time, um, and so you could look at it and see how the mandates and the forced pressure and how crazy. I mean, it's like a cult. The cult of, it's the cult of like medicine and science is yeah. what it is. Uh, how it's our savior, mm-hmm. and you'll take it. And if you don't, you're a horrible person, and they want to mandate that you do. Look at Australia. I mean, like right. how bizarre. You know, like you'd be planned like five years ago. I'm going to go on vacation to Australia. What a cool place to go on vacation! Like, <laughs> nope. Take that off the list. That's like, right. <laughs> like they're one step away from like having concentration camps over there. Right. It's insane what they're doing over there. Did you really want to go to Australia? Australia is the one place on the face of this earth I would never want to go to. I would everything. Go to, everything there is designed to kill you, dude. I would go to Australia. But <laughs> I, am I right, Larry? Yes. <laughs> I would go to Australia, but I would never. I would never go swimming in Australia. Never. I wouldn't go anywhere never in Australia. The, the spiders. Have you seen those big spiders, Jay? Uh, they've got crazy. They've got, they're gigantic, and they've got those crazy vampire bats. Yeah, they're like as big as a dog. Yeah. So, sidebar about Australia. I'm pretty sure my dad. I'm going to clarify this. He had he knew someone when he was in the army that went on a honeymoon there, and I think like his wife got 
attacked and eaten by a great white shark. <laughs> oh man, that's a hundred percent true. Wow, not a great, not a great uh, vacation spot, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if as long as you stay out of the water, maybe some cool stuff. But um, I guess it's definitely not a <laughs> not a not a great vacation I'll, spot right I'll, now. I'll, this is when we need a, a camera on Larry because he's shaking his head adamantly. Larry, <laughs> I'm right there with you, Larry. No vacations in Australia. Especially I'd rather go to now. Antarctica than, than Australia. Have you seen those those uh, videos people are making? Uh, we just want you to be healthy, and yeah. then, then like the the uh, like, I don't know if it's like their national guard or what. They're like slam a dude on their head. <laughs> Have you seen it? I haven't. Your crime. Getting oxygen outside of your apartment, yeah, like, like that's crazy. It's crazy, uh, yeah, yeah. And they just slam him on their head, like he's probably. Gonna so how die. do we how do we make sense of this? Because you, I mean, you you see things like this. Um, you see how if you don't get the if you don't get the vaccine, you could get fired, which is cutting off your livelihood. Um, how how do we make sense of this? Mm. I don't think I, I agree with you. I don't think it's the mark of the beast because I think the mark of the beast is tied to explicit worship of the beast mm -hmm. um how, how do we how do we navigate seeing some of the characteristics i think that we see of the mark of the beast in revelation 13 tied with the vaccine what what do we how how can we kind of think about this i think what you can see is um how a a governmental leader or group of leaders will exploit various things in order to attain the type of control necessary mm. for the beast emergence. You know so I mean? could we could we see this as a precursor to a mark or is this kind of um I mean I, I maybe talking in the language of typology that right. this could be a type of of it what how, what would you what would you say? I don't think I don't think it's a. Uh, I would say the mechanism of control could be the a type of the control enforced around the mark yeah. in the future. Okay, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that would include all of the sociological pressures because yeah. it's not just the government applying the pressure; it's your neighbor, right? Right? It's the world. It's yeah. the threat, uh, and I think this is. I think this is where where we need to land is when people read the book of revelation, they often get hung up on the mark of the beast uh -huh. as if it's some kind of magical um, sign. I think the real threat is the beast uh -huh. like that. That's, that's what all of this is, is aimed at. It's the beast, um, which I think in revelation 13 is, is Rome. Uh -huh. um, I think, the way that that John's painting the picture from from Daniel chapter seven, those beasts they're they're all put together. Right. Um, he's I think he's showing that it's Rome, but also that it's more than Rome. That it's I, I think that we can I think we can easily say that any world government can can turn into a beast, um, and that's what we're seeing. So I think it's just a reminder not to put your allegiance in the state. Well, don't, don't put your allegiance in man because they're not God. They 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 don't have your best interest at mind. They are they are in rebellion against God. So well, think about so being don't, a don't, Christian. Don't don't set your mind on these things and don't don't just 
fully give her allegiance to it. Right. If you if you're struggling with the idea that there that he could be speaking of the beast as Rome at this time, and early Christians could have read this and understood it, and understood the their power and the emperor and all that, and how it could be multiple beasts culminating in a great beast. Just think about what it would be like to be a Christian in North Korea. Right. Right. You do have a choice. You take the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. You you be in total allegiance to King Kim Jong Un, uh-huh. or you die. Right. Or you just you know you go be a slave in a mine and yeah. until you die. Yeah. We can think of the Nazis. We can right. think of Hitler. Like there there is a there is a manifestation of the beast. Right. Not the final beast, but a manifestation of the beast. It's it's a precursor to the the final one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you if you don't if you don't show allegiance to them, they they'll kill you. Yeah. Or in any of the communist regimes. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, any sniff of. I mean, I, I just got this uh, the first part. I didn't know it was this big when I bought it, but the Gulag Archipelago. You ever read that? Mm-mm. I didn't know it was like a four parter, and that's uh-huh. huge. But. It's about a, a man who he was an officer in uh, in the USSR or the rise of the Soviet Union, and he's they get a sn- like a, a whiff of any criticism at all. Like you may say something to a friend in private, and next thing you know, you're being hauled off to mm-hmm. a, to the Gulag Archipelago where you're going to work as a slave laborer the rest yeah. of your life. Mm-hmm. So. It's uh, it's happened throughout history and multiple times. Now, the specific thing about it in the future, I think, is that you got to remember is there's always the religious component, right? Um, there will be the line drawn between Christ and the beast, right? So that's important. Like yeah. you said, you can't do it on accident. Yeah. So that that would be where we land on the vaccine, right? Not the mark of the beast. Does taking the vaccine make you deny Christ and swear allegiance to the state. Right. No. Right. So you're you're free to of your own conscience weigh the risk and that's what you should do honestly. You should understand I think <clears throat> that the vaccine is not traditionally what we would call a vaccine. Now there is one coming out called the Novavax. We've uh-huh. talked about that. That's kind of more of a traditional vaccine. It's more of a gene therapy, which in mm-hmm. its own right is pretty amazing scientific accomplishment. Um but you should be free to weigh the risk Right, it's a simple, simple risk assessment. Yeah, am I this old? Uh, do I have do I have a uh, some type of um, autoimmune deficiency that would COVID would be a death sentence for me? Well, I need to talk to my doctor about yeah if this is going to make me not die if I take this. It's like a, like a gene therapy. Yeah, and that's why they talk about the need of a booster now because it doesn't function like a regular vaccine. <laughs> right. Uh, it's been it's a shame it's really been politicized so much and there's so much of that going on in the in the mandate stuff because it might have even scared away people that needed to take it um, and and now won't because it's so it's been so politicized so shouldn't look at it as a savior either some people view it that way you know what I mean like right um, you you shouldn't do that now the tricky thing is we need to shift gears and get to what we really wanted to talk about. Halfway through, good night. <laughs> hey, we can we can have a jumbo. Yeah. Um, where it gets tricky is talking about military stuff, and we've talked about before. I, I don't think the government can mandate to the civilian population. Now, when you join the military, um, 
how I understood it when I joined the military is I gave them my life. Literally, I, I said, here's my life. It's yours. Do with it as you want. As long as you don't ask me to do anything immoral or sin against God, I will do it. Right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that means, like, if you're, uh, if you're a soldier and they tell you, um, we need to take this hill, 98% of you will die taking it. You don't get to go, you don't get to do your own risk assessment and go, ah, but that's, is that moral to let 98% of us die? Because those in, above you know they have information you don't know. We need that hill or 5,000 will die when we maneuver. So by 12 o'clock tomorrow, you will have that hill. Hmm. And you go, I gave you my life. And you uh, say a little prayer and say to your family and to, and to God, see you in the next world. And uh, you take the hill, right? And if the government says to a pilot, uh, the 20 of you are going to test this rocket, 19 of you will probably die, but we need the rocket to win this war. You're going to fly it. You don't get to go, nah, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> right? You signed your life away. Yeah. And if you, if you can't do that then you don't need to serve. That's just my personal opinion. Now, of course, others have other opinions, but um, that's what's needed. Like when China, like I had this conversation with Drake the other day because he wants to go to the Air Force Academy or to West Point. I said, Drake, if you go to West Point, you're likely going to die in a war against China. Hmm. Are you okay with that? You need to be okay with that before you sign up. Yeah. Now, I personally believe... With all of America's flaws, it is infinitely better than China. <laughs> right. And I'm willing to, sac- to have my, f- my son sacrifice his life to stop China from taking over the world. Yeah. He's got to make that choice for himself. But when he right. signs up, he's going to know if the government says, hey, Drake, uh, the front is in Africa. We've got to have you and the boys hold the line in Africa so they don't take Africa for the essential resources for World War III, uh, you're going to take this Ebola vaccine. He doesn't get to go, I don't know, that's not been tested on a lot of people. Right? Yeah. Yeah, It. I mean, I'm coming from a civilian background. I I don't have a whole lot of experience uh, with military uh, prior to moving to Lawton, but it it does seem a little ironic that you'll sign up to go die in a war, but you won't take a shot. Right. Um, now I'm, I'm sure that people have, uh, their, their, no. re- their reasons for it. I'm sure there's reasons for it, but it, sure. it I mean, just, just from a, a you know, a, a civilian no. viewpoint, it, it seems a little, it seems a little odd. Now I do think it is absolutely ridiculous that they will not uh, take into account natural immunity. <laughs> right. Absolutely bizarre and ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, my advice and I have advised, uh, people in this fashion is that you ought to use the Army's uh, procedures. You, those are at your disposal. So yeah. the Army has apparently in their in their uh, regulations clauses about natural immunity okay. that you can't, can't be made to take a vaccine if you have natural immunity. I don't really know because I haven't looked at it, but you should try to, to use that. Like if you have a natural immunity, argue your case on the, you are, you're under military law. Yeah. So argue your case under military law. Mm. That's not disobedience. Right. Right? Right. 
So, all right. Well, you want to shift gears? We've got uh, got a video that we want to talk Dude, about. We're going to be in here another hour hey, once we uh, play this thing. Yeah, that's all right. So this video was going around. I think James White did. Um, did he do an episode on this? Uh, he mentioned it. He he spent maybe fifteen minutes on it. He didn't. He's he's on his road trip, so he's not uh, he's not taking the vaccine. So um, he's not flying. He's in an RV. So that, whenever he goes around, is it mandated vaccines to fly? I don't know, huh. uh, but uh, I don't I don't think he wants to wear a mask. Huh. Um, either so he's in an rv so whenever he uh has speaking engagements he takes an rv travels around in an rv hey that'd be pretty fun eh? <laughs> yeah Actually, that's better than flying it's a lot uh, yeah i i would agree with that a uh, lot of drive time though but he's a G, uh, is he so a G3? he's he uh, he was in arkansas um this last week, G three. Uh, he was, he was speaking G3. in conway yeah. I, I don't know uh, i think he was i yeah. think he was going there um but uh, he did a, a short little thing, but he uh, he doesn't have the same technology as he would in studio. So he didn't look at the video. He just uh, made mention of it for about 15 minutes or so. Yeah. He's he's not taking a whole lot of time with uh, William Lane Craig anymore. Yeah, he's done too much in the past. And I think that <laughs> I think that we can show why William Lane Craig is probably not someone that we would encourage people to listen to. Yeah. Um, there's a trajectory of people that are in academia. I don't know exactly what you would call it. But it's the need to be relevant in the general world of academia. Yes. And that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. What 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 could we call that? What is what would you call that? It's a form of the fear man, really, is what it is. But right. Um, well, I think it's the idol of respectability. Yeah. Um, because he he. Uh, so we're talking about William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a philosopher. He is an apologist. Um, he does debates. He goes to universities and and um, you know has speaking engagements and he. He interacts with unbelievers, yeah. with atheists, and with other scholars, and um, he's he's someone that um, is well respected as a scholar. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. Um, obviously, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I do think that what we see with someone like William Lane Craig is that because of that. Um, he makes some compromises. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what we see. I I think that his I think that his his aim is admirable. I'm not I'm not questioning his motivation or his intentions. I I think that he is legitimately trying to defend Christianity. Um, from atheism. Sure, and from secularism, but I think in doing so, and I, I think you see this from guys that are primarily philosophers. I think that you see kind of a, a leaning away from what does the Bible say. Right. So when when yeah, you know, we we talked about him uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had that uh, where he was answering that that guy's question. Yeah. Um his first instinct is not 
here's what here's what the scriptures say. His first instinct is, well, Pascal said, right. Yeah, and what's interesting too about in the um, just like in the secular academic world is that philosophers aren't really tight with scientists any like anyway. Yeah, even non Christian philosophers, they're uh-huh. kind of two fields because philosophers are dealing with they're they're dealing with these really big questions of life, right. which cannot be tested right via the scientific method. Yeah. And so the scientists, on the other hand, are saying, well, philosophy doesn't offer us anything. We only deal with uh, what we can analyze using our senses. Yeah. They're materialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's interesting about what Craig's doing, because what he's done is he's written this book on the quest for historical Adam. It seems to me that he's trying to use philosophy uh, to wed together science and the Bible. Like he's trying to make the Bible more palatable Right to the uh, materialist, mm-hmm. in order to maybe win them. I I don't know, but what he ends up doing, I think, is uh, uh, wrong. It's a uh, majorly, uh, it's a major major error theologically. He's got several errors that we'll discuss on here. One of them being catastrophic error. Yeah. And that's the one where, with his view of Apollinarianism, he mm-hmm. says he's a neo-Apollinarian. Yeah. That's a critical error, right? We'll call that a critical error. That's a critical error that renders null and void salvation. What, what Jesus did. Right. So we need to we need to discuss it. So I'll hit play, I guess. Is that how we want to do this? We'll hit play. This is Sean McDowell, another apologist. He's interviewing William Lane Craig. And uh what they're going to discuss is Genesis 1 through 11. William Lane Craig calls it proto-history and mytho-history. It's not a real history. So, well, so we're not starting at the very beginning of the of the video. It's an hour long. We're starting about 20 minutes in. But he's he's going to describe Genesis 1 through 11 as mytho-history. So, he's he is he is affirming a historical Adam and Eve from from whom all of um, humans come. Um, but he also has an allegiance to theistic evolution, so he believes that there were other um, humanoids. Humanoids, I, I guess, um, that were that had evolved. Uh-huh. God selected two of those, a pair, and form them into more more made, people more, made, more human made them into his right. image um and that, it's, so he gave them his image at that time right um and so this would be adam and eve yeah and it's from them that um the rest of humanity comes but um we'll we'll see in this clip uh early on that he he dismisses a lot of the the elements of the genesis one through eleven accounts, right, right, um, right, especially right. especially looking at Genesis two and three. Okay, let's let's do it. Let's switch over, and let's play this. Here we go. History as we look at it normally, for lack of a better term, Genesis twelve clearly has that form of history. There's a shift yes. in the narrative after eleven. So one through oh, yeah. eleven is proto history, mytho history that contains some history, but also some other stories that weren't meant to be taken historical. Is that fair as far as it goes? 
yeah, weren't meant to be taken literalistically. literalistically. When you look at myth, what you discover is that myth is often written in figurative language, uh, often fantastic language, and therefore wasn't taken literalistically even by those who accepted the myth as authoritative for their culture. Okay, so if this approach is correct, how should this shape the way, in your view, we read Genesis 1 through 11 then and the story of Adam and Eve? I think it should prompt us not to be over-literalistic in the way we read these narratives. And once you begin to look at them in terms of mytho-history, it's difficult to look at them in any other way. Hmm. I mean, when you read a story about two people in an arboretum with these magical trees whose fruit, if you eat it, will grant you immortality or knowledge of good and evil, and then there's this talking snake who comes along and tempts them into sin. And then you have this anthropomorphic God walking in the cool of the garden, calling out audibly to Adam in his, in his hideout. You think, well, of course this is figurative uh, and metaphorical language. This isn't meant to be read in this sort of literalistic fashion. And so once you begin to see these narratives this way, I think you, you begin to ask yourself, how could I have read them any other way? It would be like reading Aesop's fables literalistically. All right, and we'll stop it here for a second. Okay. <laughs> Lots going on yeah. there. Lots going on. Okay, the, fir the first thing, I would agree with him. When you come to the Bible, you need to identify the genre. Yeah. So you don't read... Um, we've been talking about revelation. You don't read revelation literalistically. Mm -hmm. So when John sees a beast rising out of the sea with seven heads and 10 horns, uh, we're not meant to be anticipating a sea monster right. that will terrorize the earth and, and people will worship it. You recognize the genre of apocalyptic literature and how it's a, it's an allusion to Daniel chapter seven, which is also apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. um, we can look at Daniel and see how how that picture is being used and how it's being interpreted within the book of Daniel. The the first beast that shows up is Babylon, and then uh, Medo Persia and Greece, and then Rome. Right, he identifies. The right, beasts. he identifies them. Uh, Daniel chapter eight. There's there is this uh, this goat and this ram, and and they're they're interpreted as nations. Mm -hmm. So we don't read it literalistically like Alexander the Great is this goat that has four horns that he's trampling. Yeah. Right. Um, so yes, you need to identify the genre. The problem is when you look at Genesis one through eleven, what genre? should we interpret it as right and he's interpreting it as mytho historical right and he gives examples of the things that he finds mythical right yeah so meaning that these things didn't actually really happen they just in a way communicate some truth that was there 
That's what yes. he means. So no, there was no real garden. No garden. No trees. No snake. No snake in the garden. No, no, no tree. No, no god. No, no god e. walking. No anthropomorphic god walking in the garden. Yeah, with this Adam. is a this is a big problem uh, in the way he kind of laughs at it. Um, yeah, I don't I don't understand how he has a problem with God walking on the earth. <laughs> so <laughs> right. the first thing I thought when I heard it, other than like I was like, oh, this is not good. This is not good. This is not good. And I thought this is really bad. Right. When he's laughing about God walking in the garden on right. the cool of day. Yeah. Because we and we've talked about it so many times on here that. Uh, whenever God interacts with creation, he's always interacted with creation as Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like if there's a physical representation of God that you're seeing, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, um, Abraham saw him, recognized his face, and ate with him. Yeah, uh, that's... What would he say of this? That's the that's the question that I have. He draws a, a distinction between Genesis 1 through 11 and and Genesis 12 through 50. Um, I don't know if it's it's in this this section that we're looking at or if it's before, but he says that Genesis 12 is where history begins. Right. So he views, he views Abraham as a, a real person, a real figure. Yeah. I don't know how he interprets Genesis 18 where there's three men that show up, Abraham f- feeds them, and he recognizes one of them as God. Right. And he, he talks to him as God and prays to him as God. And the, the, the text is very clear. This is, this is Yahweh. We right. talked about Genesis 19, Yahweh on earth called down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Um, that there's, there's two Yahwehs, um, but mm-hmm. one of them is in human form. Is that so fantastical? Like if, right. if, we're, if we're accepting that, what... What problem do we have in Genesis three, where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Why could it not be the same, the same person? I, d- I don't know how right. he. I don't know how he would distinguish the two and say, "Well, this one's fantastical. This one's obviously, you know, mythological." Right. Um, but Genesis eighteen is, is well, the, history. The question comes down to like who who becomes then the authority? Like right. if you're going to teach people the Bible, mm-hmm. who becomes the authority on what is myth? And what it's not myth, and it always ends up being the teacher, yeah. right? If you adopt this hermeneutic, yeah, right, you then become the one who can has the knowledge to tell people what's myth and what's not myth, yeah. And you can do it with anything. How, why not the burning bush, a bush that burns and yet is not, not consumed, consumed yeah, right? Yeah. It's violating the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not operating via combustion. So he is. He has elevated the whole reason that this has happened is because he's elevated as his number one source of authority modern science. Yeah, he says um, earlier in this interview, he says his biggest fear is that the young earth creationist hermeneutic, the way that that young earth earth creationists interpret Genesis 1, um, his biggest fear is that that's the correct way to interpret Genesis 1 and 2. Right. The, the young earth and he says it's his biggest fear because if that's if that's the proper hermeneutic six days god created the heavens and the earth um then it puts the bible in a in an indefensible position right indefensible against what indefensible against the scientific worldview that says right. that the earth has to be millions and millions of years old right so he he wants to he wants to say that the bible and science go together but when push comes to shove, he always elevates science 
Well, because he's bought into evolution. That's a problem. See, there's a way where you could you could even deny that the earth is young and yet hold to the literalistic view of one through 11. Yeah. And that's simply that there are, there are large gaps in genealogies. Yeah. Right. Right. And that only key figures are mentioned. Mm -hmm. And we know this, of course, from the other genealogies in the Bible, that not every single person is listed in these genealogies. Right. Even in Matthew chapter one, with the genealogy of Jesus, there are a couple of Kings that are, are absent. Right. Yeah. And they know not only from these the genealogies of the Bible, but the way genealogies were done in general yeah. in this time, that not everyone's mentioned. Yeah. The significant people are mentioned. How, how sad would that be? You get left out. <laughs> Man, but didn't accomplish he, anything. So he, he makes fun of he makes fun of young Earth creationists as if all of us believe the Earth is only six thousand years old. Mm -hmm. When I don't think that the I don't think that the genealogies are closed, meaning that everyone's included. Mm -hmm. I think they're open. I think that that like you said, it's the it's only certain individuals are mentioned, um, which would expand the time period, not to the extent that he wants it, millions right. of years, right? But tens of thousands. That's that's a possibility. That's right. not that's not off the table. Yeah. Right. Uh, but still, young. Well, there are a lot of other issues involved with this and like such as like how is how are the measurements being done? Mm -hmm. Um there are a lot of there are a lot of other big issues that we just don't even have time to go into on this on how you would date the age of the earth, right. how things would even age in a different environment. Right. There's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> right. But the the big issue is is that he's elevated science to such a degree and evolution. Apparently he's bought into macro evolution. Mm -hmm. I mean micro evolution I think is provable. It's testable and provable. Mm -hmm. Micro evolution God has built into genetics right. in a wonderful way. That enables on uh, within within kinds, pretty expressive things. I mean, you can just look at dogs, right? Like w all of the variations of dogs that you see today, humans have done that, yeah. right? We have selectively bred for certain traits, and we know that dogs come from uh, some some type of wolf breed yeah. that we domesticated, and. <laughs> Look what we did with them. When yeah. you got these tiny dogs, and then you've got a mastiff. Yeah, they're not, they're not different kinds. They're the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just their genetics contained that type of. I don't know if elasticity is the correct word, but it's built into where microevolution can do a lot of great things. What you never see happening is dogs becoming something else. Right, Cat, cats. You even see it in humans. Yeah. I mean, there's depending on where you live, what environment you're in. You look different, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you are less or more human. Right. Um, it means that you have built into you genetics that allow for you to adapt to the the environment uh -huh. in which you live. Um, but what you don't see is apes turning into people. So, so what what he's done? He calls this mytho history, mm -hmm. right? I would argue back to him. You've just adopted a different myth, because there's no there there is no the type of evidence that a speaking of like from a materialist point of view, a lot of what he's doing is philosophical. But he's adopted a different myth that cannot be tested via the scientific method, yeah. right? There's no mechanisms that can be tested. It's got to be testable and repeatable to be real science. 
And there's no mechanisms built into any genetics anywhere on the earth that would account for increased in complexity, yeah. the kind that it takes to jump kinds. Now, where would where would theistic evolution fit into this? Because he he's he's not an atheistic Darwinian. He is a theistic evolutionist. Mm-hmm. So he believes in evolution, but it's it's guided right. by God's hand. Sure. And this and actually I had to inter- interact with this when I was researching the problem of evil because what it ends up doing is it in, what you end up with is God who's created a world that's governed by there's a book called Red Tooth and Claw that he's wired into the world death okay death is an essential component to how God's world works so when God said everything is good he would say that's myth but still he would say God's declaring the system of a world good mm-hmm. that would include not uh, just good, but very good. Yeah, that would include uh, death from the beginning, uh, species scrapping by sur- sur- for survival, mm. uh, predators, uh, you know, killing and just scrapping by. And whoever whoever can adapt and scrap by and kill survives. Right. And you eventually will evolve into something that's a humanoid. <laughs> And if you're if you're buying into the hundreds of millions of years of evolution, then you would have to have whole species gone extinct before man ever shows up. You have death in the and here's the big problem, right? In, in Romans chapter five, Paul presents death entering the world through the sin of Adam, right. and then he says, um, "And death reigned from Adam to Moses." Mm-hmm even though there was no law given, right? The law came through Moses, but even though there was no law, we see that sin reigned. Or s- death is spreading to all men because all men sin, so death is reigning from Adam to Moses. Mm-hmm. Now, what you have to accept if you take the theistic evolution view is that death reigned from the beginning of time to Adam. Right. You have to go, you have to flip it. Mm-hmm. Before. So you'd have to say, before there ever was a law, death reigned from single-celled organism to Adam, yeah, that's what you've got to buy into. And he's got, he's got, um, you know, Adam and Eve are not alone. There are other humanoids, humanoids um, that bipedal. I don't know. I don't remember what he calls them. Or do they do? Are they awesome at the bear crawl? <laughs> like get in, they get into a to a beast like sprint uh-huh. as they hunt. Their I don't prey. know what he. I don't know what he what he believes, but in, in that regard, but. He would he would have other humanoids, and these humanoids would be dying. Oh yeah. So sure. it's not it's not just so we need to to remember he's not just talking about you know the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. he's talking about creatures that look like humans, and are almost there. They're dying also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we'll probably should hit play on the clip again to see if we can talk about more, but. What you what, the other problem that you have when you adopt this view is if you believe Adam is a myth, the fall is a myth. Um, the gospel is presented in part at the beginning and in, in the during this myth, yeah, right. So you have to uh, jettison the view that Adam is some type of representative of the human race, right. and he does. Yeah, he does. Oh, it's, Let's play. It's, it. Well, I mean, I think, think it's. it's be- I think it's before. Okay. I think it's before. He says that he doesn't. He doesn't accept the doctrine of original sin. Okay. Um, that's a big problem yeah. for a lot of reasons. 
Um, yeah, it's a big problem. W- one is that it has been, uh, the church has historically labeled that as heretical. <laughs> that right. You, it's, in, in some form, original sin has to be um, accepted. It appears to me that he's, but his so his beyond semi Pelagian that he's become a Pelagian. It seems like I mean if you if you get rid of if you just jettison original sin entirely, which is what he does, um, he, you would become a Pelagian. Mm-hmm. Um, so his his interpretation of of Romans chapter five that um, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin because all men sinned. His interpretation is that Adam's sin opened, this is this is his wording, opened the floodgates for other people to start sinning. Okay. So that's Pelagian. Right. That it's it's by and, example and through your environment. That's what I was you say. start it's to an, sin. It's purely environmental. Right. right. Um, which hypothetically that would mean that that when someone comes into the world, when a baby is born they're born neutral. They're born they're born without sin. Right. So there is at least hypothetically the the um, possibility that there could be people that never sin. Mm-hmm. That's Pelagianism. Right. Um, the problem that that William Lane Craig has in his entire presentation of Genesis one, two, and three is he he ignores the covenant. Yeah. He ignores a covenantal relationship between God and Adam. Yes. The the there's a reason why God puts his image in a garden mm-hmm. and tells him to work it and keep it. That that phrase is picked up later in Leviticus to talk about the priest. Adam is being presented as a priest in a garden temple. Right. It yeah. opens to the east. It's it, the, everything about it should and and he talks about how would this have been read um, by the the you know the people that it's being written to the Israelites in the ancient Near East. They would have picked up on all this. That here's Adam. He's in a temple. He's the priest, and he's the king. Yeah. And God gives him a command: Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, I think that Israel, as they've come to Mount Sinai and they've received the law, and they're going to go into the Promised Land, and they're being told, "Keep the law, or you're going to die." I think they would have picked up on all of this. Right. That God has entered into a covenant relationship with Adam, and so Adam is not simply genetically sin is not something that's just genetics; it's covenantal. Right. So God enters into a relationship with Adam through covenant. He gives him a law, um, and so he represents his people. And if Adam obeyed, he would live forever. Right. That's that's and no one else would sin. Right. Because it's through his sin, as he breaks the law, he violates the covenant that the covenant curses come upon not just him, but, but on his children. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this is important in Romans chapter 5, because as Adam was in covenant with God and he broke the covenant, Jesus is in covenant with God and he keeps it. Right. And so uh, and this, his, his problem with original sin is the problem a lot of people have. How can other people be blamed for the sin of one man? Well, if you got a problem with that, well, you got to jettison also the fact that Paul says that through the obedience of one person, many people are made righteous. Right. So you can't you can't say, well, I don't want the I don't want the consequences of Adam's sin, but I want all the benefits of Jesus's right. obedience. It it cuts both ways, and so Adam is in covenant with God, and so all the blessings and all the curses of that covenant fall on yeah. Adam and his offspring. Jesus is in covenant 
all the blessings of his covenant obedience then is extended to all of his yeah. quote unquote children. He he has a major a major problem with the way the Bible is going to unfold because Genesis one through three, I mean really one through eleven, I mean all of it comes up repeatedly in the New Testament and it's discussed not as a myth but as actual historical events. Right. Uh, Peter discusses the flood, uh, angels, all this. But when we when we looked at uh just a little bit ago in John's Gospel, Jesus' great temptation, I, I I brought out what I think is explicit in that text, and it and it repeats through the end of John. The garden theme mm-hmm. is essential. John is recording historical events, right. and it appears that God has uh, written the the Messiah's life, Jesus' life, to unfold in a way that is the culmination of repeated patterns in the Bible. So Jesus goes into a garden. He's man's representative in a garden. The temptation is so great to disobey God that he sweats drops of blood. And rather than talk to the serpent, Jesus talks to God, and he overcomes the temptation. He's obedient. And through his obedience, he's able to bring with him Many uh, many others into the culmination of the garden, which is what we see in the end of Revelation. That the garden is back, the tree of life is back, mm-hmm. and this garden theme is throughout the Bible. Yeah, is, and is that is that myth also? Is that mytho historical? We're not we're not supposed to see a new heavens and new earth. That is the fulfillment of the garden, right? Um, and all God's purposes in the the last Adam. Um, is is that mytho historical also? So you got and you have. I mean, Jesus, it's, it's book, yeah. the the Bible has bookends, yeah, and it, it begins and ends in a garden. And if the garden in the beginning isn't real, <laughs> what what exactly are we looking forward to at the end of the book? What's funny? What's not funny to me? It, what's funny to me? I was going to say is how he thinks this is funny. Yeah, because um, this is the way that a non-believer would laugh at the Bible. Yeah, right. But they would do it with everything. They do it with Jesus. Mm-hmm. They do it with the flood. They do it with Moses parting the Red Sea. They do it with Jesus casting out demons, rising from the dead. They'd say, all oh, this is fantastical. Right. He's just chosen to laugh at the first part of the Bible. I mean, he's laughing at it. Yeah. There's magical trees. Like, There's all these things. Yeah, the way that he frames it even is poisoning so the if well. I could, if I could ask him, I mean, like if he were here, I would say, because I know he's presented, he's got the cosmological argument for the beginning of the universe, which is a powerful argument if you do evidentialism stuff. Right. The moral argument's better. Um, and I think you can base it in Romans, so I think I like that one better. But yeah. still, um, why? I would ask him, why do you believe that there's a God who created everything from nothing, but the first part of the Bible <laughs> yeah. is so fantastical, it has to be myth. Like, yeah. That doesn't compute at all. Yeah. Right? A God that can make everything from nothing can create right. a universe yeah, here's where, the, the, where there is a tree that you eat of and you live forever. <laughs> right. William Lane Craig, he, uh, he takes a similar approach to uh, someone like Andy Stanley, that um, they are using the resurrection as proof of the Bible, of the, the truthfulness of the Bible. Um, and so... William Lane Craig is a staunch defender of the of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Why is that not as fantastical as Genesis one through eleven? 
it doesn't no. it doesn't make any sense. No, no. Uh, like you said before we uh, we started, um, you said he's just picking and choosing the things that he finds unbelievable. Right. So I said, is he an anti? We were like talking through this. He's like an anti supernaturalist, like he's a materialist. But you're like, no, no, no he's, he's not, not that. Though. He's not that. That's right. And so then we said, we said, well, maybe he's just a selective anti supernaturalist. Yeah, he's just, he's just selecting which things he wants to to believe and which things he's saying are mytho historical. Right, because he's got a whole argument for the resurrection that he presents yeah. on campuses and to atheists. Yeah, he like, he holds to the resurrection of of Jesus. Right, and so the question is, that's like. If you look at the history of man, people would be more likely to believe in magic trees <laughs> than they would believe that someone could rise from the right. dead. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. Even the pagans, right? Yeah. Uh, acknowledge Zeus can't raise someone from the dead. Yeah. Like the like the dead, when you die, it's final. Yeah. And so, but he's chosen to believe supernaturalism right. around Jesus for some reason. I don't know what the reason is. Maybe he's got some, some some type of sentimental tie to it. But let's let's should I hit play or should we uh, just talk about his Apollinarianism? I I'm not sure where exactly on the on the video it is. Um, but he he doesn't. I mean, he's not talking about that. It's just kind of an offhanded remark that he makes. Right. So he he holds to the historicity of an Adam, an Adam figure. Yes. And. A big reason for that is the testimony to it in the New Testament. Uh-huh. So Romans chapter five, First uh, Corinthians fifteen, um, Jesus uh, affirms the you know the historicity of Adam. So he says we we've got to hold to a historicity of Adam. There's there's too many problems that arise if you get rid of of a historical Adam. Yeah. But one of the the things he just makes this kind of offhanded remark. He says that Jesus is omniscient. And so he would have known that there was a historical Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, that for for him to know everything means that he can't be wrong. Yes. Um, but there's a problem there. Big problem. There's a big problem there. That if you're not familiar with his 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 position on the uh, the hypostatic union or or how Jesus is both God and man, you're gonna miss it. Mm-hmm. But he has, and and this is documented. He calls himself a neo Apollinarian. Right now, Apollinarius was a uh, he was a, a I think he was a pastor um, in what the fourth century, I think fourth or fifth century. And the early churches is wrestling with how is Jesus what what the nature of Jesus? He, he's fully God, he's fully man, what does that mean? Uh, what is the Bible teaching? And so uh, different viewpoints were popping up. And Apollinarius, he held that um, Jesus had, uh, he, was, he was fully human in his body, but he had a divine mind. Yeah. So he had a God mind. Right, right. Now, that, that's, you see that in, in William Lane Craig's position when he says that, well, Jesus can't be wrong because he's omniscient. You see that neo-Polinarianism pop up. Right. So Jesus has a divine mind that's omniscient. Now, why is that a problem? So is he is he not omniscient? So let's let's answer that question first. Was Jesus in his incarnation omniscient? No. He wasn't. How do we know that? Uh, because he learned. Okay. He, so he I mean so people don't this is we'll talk about this in Sunday school this week. 
so it's already been on my mind. But this is one of my favorite things to talk about. I think you probably have discerned that. I love to bring out the humanity of Jesus because it is, not only is it essential to the doctrine of salvation, but it is incredibly uh, comforting Mm -hmm. to people if you're being tempted with sin and your ability to overcome temptation, or if you're going through great times of suffering and sorrow, if this is not true about Jesus, you can find no comfort in him. Right. So salvation's tied to it, and your comfort in Christ is tied to it. He is a human in every single way that you are a human, right? He was born, he had a human mind, a human brain. He has a human will, um, a human soul, right? He is a human being. If he's not a human being, he cannot represent you before God, right? Just like Adam was a human being, and he is our representative, and sin spread through the world, like this is essential Christian doctrine. Jesus is our representative. He is a human. Um, and if he wasn't a human, then he's not our representative. And I think, as you see in the Bible, that means we're still dead in our sins because he represented us on the cross as a human being. Yeah. Now, that's difficult for people because he has a divine nature. And we, we can talk about that, but first let's emphasize this. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that Jesus is tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. The Bible also affirms in James, I believe it's in chapter 1, that God cannot be tempted with sin, right? Okay. If you hold to William Lane Craig's view, Jesus was not tempted with sin, because what you have in his Apollinarianism is you just have, you have, uh, like, think about an android body, right? Think about, if you want to use a modern illustration, think about vision from Marvel, right? You've got Ultron trying to develop that synthetic body so that he can put his consciousness in the body and take over the world. Okay. So what you have is God growing in Mary, just a humanoid body, and then when Jesus is born, God implants the divine mind of the second person of the Trinity directly into Jesus, not saying that the divine mind wasn't present, but that Jesus didn't, he didn't cheat, right? Yeah. That's important. When things got hard for Jesus, he didn't go, time out, uh, human, human, human nature, time out. This sin is too tough. Divine mind, I cannot be tempted. <laughs> yeah. If Jesus did that, we're still, we're, we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. He right. didn't, he wasn't, a, he didn't cheat. He represented you. Things got tough for him. He was really tempted to disobey God. In the wilderness, he's tempted. Uh, He's tempted by Satan, like Adam was tempted by Satan. He overcomes by faith. Right. If he doesn't overcome by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's not acting as a human. Right. Um, So we've talked about it as a robot. Like People think about God that way, and Craig clearly does, that here's Jesus, you know, but inside Jesus' mind in like a little chair is the divine God driving <laughs> Jesus' body around. Oh, let me pretend to be thirsty. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is really difficult for people to grasp, but this is, the, this is how the New Testament presents Jesus. Mm-hmm. When he said that, when, when Luke says that he grew in knowledge, that's not hyperbole. Right. Um, it's not mytho-historical. <laughs> Jesus actually learned... He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He he learned his his ABCs. Uh, he he learned the scriptures. But did he, George? He knows everything. Right. That's you know when when he he learned obedience when he, he learned obedience. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this throughout Hebrews. 
Um, the, the first, the first five chapters of Hebrews is it just has this stuff all in it and you, you can't make any sense of it if you don't have a good understanding of, of fully human. He is truly a human. Um, there's, there's nothing, there is nothing in Jesus that was different than what's in me, except he didn't have a sin nature and he didn't right. sin. Um, when the woman touched him and he said, who touched me? He's not asking a rhetorical question. He doesn't know right. which person in the crowd touched him until she comes forward and tells him. Right. When he says that no one knows the day or the hour when, when, when he's coming again in his humanity, he really means it. Right. He doesn't know. Now he knows now. Things are in different. His gl- in, his glorified, right. in his glorified body, he knows now. Right. But in his, in his humiliation, in his incarnation, he did not know. Right. Um, and so right. what this means in relation to Adam, bringing it back to William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig says he knew that there was a historical Adam because he's omniscient. He knows everything. No. I would say no. The reason why he knows there has, is a historical Adam is because as the obedient son, he believes the scriptures. Yeah, he believes the scriptures. He, he reads Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and he now, believes it. Now, here's the most trippy thing in the Bible. Jesus reads the Bible as he grows up. This will blow, this will blow your mind if you just think about it. He learns the language. Mm-hmm. Well, he probably learns a few languages. Right? He, he probably knows Greek, uh, Aramaic. Yeah, he's probably Hebrew. at least he's at least got a probably a working knowledge of Greek, maybe yeah. Latin. Yeah, because he interacts. I mean, at least like a, li- a at least a little bit. It's a melting pot. That right. That culture is just a melting pot. So yeah. he, he, but he reads the Hebrew scriptures. Um, did he, he probably read in the Sep, the Septuagint? Which is interesting to think about, right? He yeah. probably had access to to uh, different scrolls of Hebrew, but. Mm-hmm. He he's learning now. His capacity to learn probably far outseeds ours because he's not tainted by sin, mm-hmm. and the human mind not tainted by sin. I think is and unbelief and unbelief. He, right. He's not tainted by unbelief. That's it's right. not it's not difficult for him to to um, just immediately accept what God's word says because he doesn't have unbelief that that forms kind of this roadblock to us. Sometime in the Bible, sometime in Jesus' life, I think, uh, you know, it, it happened. He realized all the messianic prophecies were about him, yeah. that he was the Messiah. Mm. He wasn't born into the world with that knowledge. Yeah. And that's hard to think. That, that goes against probably a lot of what we have always thought since we have been little. Yeah. And so knowing that, he realized he's believing the own scriptures that he wrote. <laughs> right. <laughs> like what yeah. when that happened like like wow yeah How, can you even i mean like we can't imagine it but he he's reading and believing what his divine nature had wrote right yeah this is we have to be balanced or we written we we don't thing. we don't i think the the chalcedonian creed is is not widely read um but i think it needs to be because it's it's attempting to put in the human language this mystery of of the incarnation of of what's known as the hypostatic union where the the divine and the human nature are in one person and so jesus is he's one person right. but he has two natures yeah and we can't fully understand that because we are one person with one nature right 
Um, so we're there's a mystery there that we're we're simply not going to be able to comprehend. Yeah, because we're we're never going to experience it. But um, it's what the Bible is presenting, does, yeah. and we cannot we cannot minimize the human nature of Jesus um, and escalate the divine nature and. Um, because like you said, if, if Jesus is not truly a man, if he doesn't experience things as a man, if he doesn't have a human mind and a human will and a human soul, then he can't save those aspects of us. Right. If he's everything human except for his mind, then he can save everything about us except for our mind. And that's going to be a big problem. Yeah. It, lib- you know, liberals will uh, pretty much deny the... Um, his divine nature, right? And that's their error. Uh-huh. Well, the error sometimes of conservatives is to overemphasize his divine nature in a way that you've denied his true humanity. Yeah, and that's a bad thing to do. Right. Uh, not only for the salvation deal, but like I said, for when you're going through pain and suffering, because you realize Jesus, he suffered in his life, not just at the cross. Yeah. He lived in a fallen world his whole life. Was imagine like we are kind of in a way, have a healthy um, distaste for the dysfunction of society. Like there are things that are repulsive to us about society in the fallen world, and they rightly should be. The over-sexualization of children and uh, how women are objectified and a whole host of things, right? Injustice. And we're sinners. Jesus has never sinned in his entire life, and he is... I imagine to him it was like walking through a cloud of pollution. Mm. So his suffering, living in this world, would be like ours, but amplified in many ways. He, people he knew died, and he cries when they die. Um, he has friends, he has close friends, his friends betray him, and yeah. they leave him. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. Uh, he's lied about and slandered, mocked, um, he's lonely. <laughs> if he's a divine mind, he's none of those things. Right. He's none of them. Yeah. If, well, if he's only a divine mind, I'll say. Yeah. Because he is, you have to maintain the uh, the two natures in the one person. But it is a great comfort because you're going to be those things in your life sometime. Yeah. And Jesus is a real comfort. So when you pray to him, he knows how to minister to you. To you, not to some idea of loneliness. Mm. All right, so going back to this video, um, because we're 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 kind of scattershotting the things that that William Lane Craig believes that right. I, I think are are contrary to the scripture and are problematic, extremely problematic. Yeah, um, his neo Apollinarianism, his denial of original sin, but getting back to the the video itself and his mockery of magic trees right. and, and talking snakes and anthropomorphic God walking around. It's all because he's trying to, he's trying to put this together with science. Sure. So he doesn't hold to a, a literal tower of Babel because he says, um, the study of the development of linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't hold to a worldwide flood. Um, and he doesn't hold to, the events as presented in Genesis one through three or one through 11. Yeah. Altogether. Um, And he does that because of his commitment to science. Right. 
So what should our view of of science be? Because his his view of science is really adopting a lot of what the world is is saying. Mm-hmm. Where should we where should we land? Because um, science and the Bible can go together, right? Because we're living in God's world. Mm-hmm. So so science is going to be an outworking of of accurately observing God's world. Right. Where should we land? Because we're not going to land with William Lane Craig in his theistic evolution mm-hmm. and his millions of years of of death or his denial of of Genesis 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, where 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 should we where should we land? Maybe some helpful helpful thoughts on that for uh, for people who maybe you're asking all right so what what do we do with science well i think science we we ought to know uh, how it should be is just a collection of knowledge um, which changes over time and has changed a lot i mean at one time there's a scientific consensus that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around the earth until scientists learned more and changed their mind there's a whole host of things in this regard uh, science is always changing and always it, it should be always changing but I think what, what you have today is the dedication, or like the commitment to science in itself is almost like a, a, a religion that cannot err. The inerrancy of science, right. which is itself is a myth. I mean, it's not real. Science yeah. should always be changing. Uh, but the problem today, the way that science is operating is there are presuppositions that are held to that are, that are in their, that are theory that aren't testable or repeatable. I, I don't. I mean, there there are many problems with a lot of these a lot of these theories, but the presupposition is held to, and then that from that presupposition, everything else in science is interpreted in light of that. When what should happen is evidence should be examined in a uh, non-biased way, which you know we're we're fallen in sin, so we can't. I mean, one example is this. I just saw this past week. Uh, there are. There's evidence of a great flood in the state of Washington where if you zoom out on Google Earth, you can clearly see it. I mean, it'd be like, you know, if there's a a ton of rain all of a sudden in your backyard and you see a washout in your yard, Mm -hmm. well, that didn't happen over millions of years. You say, oh, dang, the uh, five feet of Earth literally just washed out of my yard, and you can see the trail. Well, you zoom out on Google Earth, and you've got these. They're a mile and a half wide, Mm. right? Well... Science scientists committed to presuppositions will interpret that through billions of years. Yeah, someone like me will look at that and say, oh, "Look at that! There was a lot of water all of a sudden at one time, right?" So, um, I think what what we need to acknowledge too about science is science has given us a lot of really great things. Like I I, I love what science has given us. I mean, we're using it right now: microphones, podcast recorders, phones on the camera. Um, and there's all kinds of great stuff. Science has advanced and um, given us uh, medicines. Um, and all of that, we can say, is the grace of God. It's a general grace of God that he's given us the ability to learn and to adapt and to create, and it's good. Science is good. Um, but where we are at today in the world is science versus religion, really. Um, and so William Lane Craig's trying to bring to do together. I don't know that the two will ever be brought together uh, until the new world, uh, and in the new world we'll do science perfectly, I think. Free from sin, the human 
human the ability of humankind is so far beyond what we're able to do now as uh, people bound by sin. Our, our minds don't function as they should. Again, we latch on to presuppositions that we should maybe not. Um, so I don't know if I even answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll but, let other people. I'll let other people make that uh, make that call. So, but I, I do think I, I I like what you said at the end is um, that bec- we we have to we have to remember that we're fallen, and that fallen humanity is in rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. Romans chapter one again, not hyperbole. Like this is the this is a, an accurate assessment of humanity they claim to be wise but they're foolish because they elevate creation over god they suppress the truth about who god is right and they elevate they elevate the the creation as supreme and yeah. they and they they worship it one one drastic example of this that it, that uh just gets me every time is uh you know they create very advanced prosthetics for yeah. ve- for veterans, and that's awesome. Science is awesome. Right. But what they do is they create it, they model it off the human hand. So they're looking at this human hand, and they say, this is incredibly complex. It's so far beyond what we're able to make. It's so advanced. Yeah. They'll use terminology like advanced. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? And they say, uh, wow, chance, time and chance right. sure are awesome. Millions of and they years literally of believe evolution. That. They believe that. Time right. and chance, which can't do anything, created something that complex right. that we can't even create. Yeah. Instead of going, man, God is so awesome. Right. So when we think about science and, and scientists, they can make accurate observations about things. They can see, like you said, in, in Washington, it looks like water carved this out. Look at the Grand Canyon. Right water carve this out that's a that's an accurate observation but in their fallenness their minds are are captive to sin and are suppressing the truth about god and so in, instead of submitting to god's word in their in their uh, assessment of this in their interpretation of their observations they instead they suppress that truth and they push away from it and they say this was formed by water, but it was formed over millions of years. Mm-hmm. So we need to, when we're thinking about science and the uh, the the things that scientists are are saying with with utmost certainty, we need to remember that they are under the effects of the fall. Right. So they can make accurate observations, but their interpretations are not always going to be accurate because of yeah. their sinfulness and their fallenness. Yeah, and you can see it most drastically in. Uh, the two big problems, and that's where kind of philosophers come in, like even non non uh, Christian philosophers, materialists can't answer the origin of biological life. Yeah, so big like the biggest hole in their entire. I mean, they have a myth. Yeah, they have their own myth story of creation. It's magical. I mean, it's magical. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about magical things, uh, biological life, right? Magically coming from non-biological life. And they've tried to, the lightning in a bottle test, there's actual name for the test, I can't think of it right now off the top of my head, but they've been trying to repeat it, I mean, they've been trying to like prove that it can happen, given water, I guess minerals, and lightning strikes, <laughs> and uh, they, they can't, There's it doesn't happen. Yeah. But they've been trying for like 100 years. Hmm. So, 
I mean, they know. Good luck, I guess. There's a big problem. (laughs) Why are we here? Yeah. Why why is there anything at all? Right. Science can't answer that question. What is consciousness? They can't answer that question. Yeah. So. Hmm. All right. You kind of need someone who knows the answer to those things to tell you. Right. To tell you what the answer is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God has, uh, he has been merciful to us and given us special revelation that answers these questions, right? Uh, and it is our duty to submit to it and obey it and then live our lives in accordance with his word. So hopefully this has been a helpful episode for you. We talked a little bit about vaccines, uh, Mark of the Beast. We will, uh, we're planning on talking a little bit more about that in the near future so be watching for that we talked a little bit about william lane craig and went all over the place with that one hopefully that was youtube don't ban us for talking vaccines that's right we are not (laughs) anti-vaxxers oh oh merciful overlords yeah. Uh, in the tech world. Um, so if this has been <laughs> helpful, <laughs> if this has been helpful for you, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, uh, share it, and we hope that this will help you to become more conformed to Christ.